0: Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change, and environmental justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm, of course, your host, Brian Binkowski, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Well, folks, somehow we are at the end of the year. This will be our last podcast before the holiday stretch, and we will be taking next week off from any essays or podcasts. Our team wishes all of you a happy holiday season. I hope it is filled with friends, family, food, or whatever it is that makes you happy. Maybe that is not family, friends, and food. Maybe it is being alone with a book. Whatever it is that makes you happy and relaxed, I hope you get to do that this holiday season. I think we all deserve a break at the end of this year. It kind of feels like the last couple years have just been a lot. Just a lot in general. So I know I will be spending time out in the beautiful northern Michigan woods and snow. So cheers to y'all finding your happy place to decompress. We will have a short podcast in two weeks just before New Year's. So keep your eyes out for that. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Leave us a review, tell your friends, and help us get the word out. Today's guest is Gavin Rain, a current Agents of Change Fellow and an Epidemiology and Biostatistics PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky College of Public Health. Rain talks about what his time in the Navy taught him about global injustice, why children are an excellent predictor of a community's well-being, and how urban planning can incorporate environmental justice to leave communities better prepared for natural disasters. Enjoy! All right. I am super happy to be joined by Gavin Rain. Gavin, how are you doing today?
1: I'm really good. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. And where are you today? Right now, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Excellent. What a a fun city. haven't been there in a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been here for... I uh, came here to do my master's at the University of Louisville. Um, And then I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue a PhD uh, so then did my master and then went on to do my, um, and just about a couple months away from finishing my PhD.
0: Excellent. I always think of Muhammad Ali when I think of Louisville. I'm a boxing yeah, yeah, fan. yeah yeah Yes. So you grew up far from Louisville. You come from Hollywood, California originally, and I, you have said your heritage is a community quilt of conflicting identities, which I think is such a, a beautiful turn of phrase. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up there and, and what you
1: meant by that? Yeah, so um, so I was so I was actually I was born in Michigan, but then we moved to um, California when I was you know a, a child, very very young, um, and I grew up. Um, so I grew up in Hollywood, California. So I grew up in a very kind of a heavy mixture of um, South American communities, Central American communities, a lot of um, various African African communities as well. Um, and so my cultural upbringing was really kind of a. Kind of amalgamation of these intersecting identities, especially because um, the type of people that I interacted with were also those who were very also who were very actively and proactively interested in um, understanding and expressing their culture and their heritage and things like that. So, uh, you know, you could. From I was the type of kid who you always knew was going to be a scientist, the question was just what type of scientist we're going to be, which meant, you know, I went to a lot of gifted programs and things like that. So um, as a Gavin operating in public spaces, I was navigating oftentimes... Na- you know navigating very kind of white spaces you know filled with you know, you know. Um, but then in my personal life it was very much spaces that were dominated by what America considers ethnic minorities and so uh, you know it was you'd have kind of these very pro me spaces um, versus going to kind of a kind of very racially oppressive system that, you know, the American education system can be for, you know, a young man of color. So uh, yeah, it was, very, it was very much a con- constant conflicting identity source. Uh, you go to school and you can, you can be told, you know, there's something wrong with you because of the way you look, the way you are, whatever about your identity exists. But then at home in my home spaces, you know, it's nothing but, you know, everything about you is amazing because of your identity. So it's it, it very much, you can leave, you, I left, very confused for a while. I took a lot of navigating to kind of like settle down my own roots.
0: Yeah, that sounds really jarring, especially uh, a lot of folks that have talked on here haven't had the um, the one of the other, right? So they maybe they didn't get yeah. pushed into the kind of the, the, the white kind of monotonous spaces until later in life, or they didn't have this exposure to a lot of diverse cultures. And that sounds like it
1: would be really jarring for a young man. Yeah, I mean, it was You know, like I met Maya Angelou when I was really young. And, you know, so for me, it was, oh, you know, we can, Maya Angelou, I grew up, you know, loving Langston Hughes and I, you know, W.E.D. Bois. like I grew up, these are people that I grew up like knowing and loving and reading and, you know, just all their works. And then, you know, of course you go to, and then at home and in our art spaces, you know, you hear about, you know, America's real history. you know, you know, you know, at school, they're like, "Oh, you know, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and he's amazing." And at home, we're like, "No, he's like <laughs> a, a very bad person, uh, in the polite way. Uh, you know, it was a very unpleasant human being." Um, and so, and that was pretty constant, you know, for me growing up. As I even when we left, even when, you know, leaving California, because I lived, I've lived all over the U.S. now, um, and so uh, it was that it, that pretty constant. It, very, very constant recognition. You know, I remember hearing about Henrietta Lacks um, when I was in a freshman in high school, and so all these people are talking about, oh, you know, the DNA is amazing, and you know, they're you know watching all and, you know, constantly. There's this constant. Then go home and hear the alternative. Well, yeah white history is nice but real history is a little bit uglier and a little bit more honest Mm -hmm. and it needs you know a bit more context you know things like that so uh i think i was maybe it was fifth grade and they were doing one of those thanksgiving things you know the oh you know the pilgrims and all that jazz and the the teacher is you know and she's doing the whole um show and you know everybody's And i was like is it really good to celebrate a day that led to the genocide of, you know, actual Americans? And like the, I just remember the room going, you know, deafeningly silent.
0: Right. And
1: I got in trouble, I'm pretty sure. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got in trouble. I'm pretty cause I remember going to that. It wouldn't have been the first time it happened, but yeah. So.
0: <laughs> well, there's a such thing as good trouble as, uh, uh, as we find out later in life. And I, so I could be wrong, but I think you're one of the first agents of change fellows that served in the military. And I apologize for any previous fellows that I, that I didn't know this about, but so you were in the Navy as you finished up mm-hmm. your college degree, what prompted you to join and what was that experience
1: like? Yeah. So, um, I joined, I joined, the um, I finished my first. So I have two bachelor's degrees. I have one in psychology, and my the one I got when I left was in microbiology, and molecular uh, genetics. Um, so I wasn't really sure. So I was finishing my third year, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and you know, if you get a psychology degree, um, if you're going, if you're planning on doing psychology, you need to do graduate school, and that's you know, it's a huge commitment. And so I wasn't really sure. Um, so I ended up going. Um, not on a whim, but very much kind of like a, I, I don't do well with kind of like doing nothing. So um ended up joining uh, and I was in the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. So, um, but I also served it openly um, and you know, I don't have anything really bad to say about it that you might, I mean, I mean, besides we all have bad things to say about our first jobs. You know <laughs> And then there are, of course, unique th- things that are uniquely annoying um, about being in the military and frustrating and obstacles there. but for the most part, um, it was a really informative, uh, life-changing experience that made me a better person. Um, I spent so I was, so I was a sailor. Um, I spent uh, four years overseas in Japan. And so I worked out of a marine base. I worked with the Marines, um, worked with the Army, worked with the Air Force as well. Um, and so we coordinated. And that's actually where my interest in disaster disaster um, response and preparedness and epidemiology began. Um, because we coordinated um, medical relief efforts throughout the Pacific Theater, um, throughout the entire Pacific Theater, um, to responding to, to tsunamis, um, Fukushima. We, we worked coordinated the initial response to that. Which you know was the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster in Japan. So uh, yeah, and it was an it was an interesting kind of mind-opening <laughs> experience. To be honest with you,
0: yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. I I I think that's uh, that's incredible as a as a young man to kind of not on a whim, but kind of uh, take the reins like that to keep yourself busy and, and see the world. And you mentioned that maybe this was uh, kind of an area where you started getting interested in. Um, environmental health and disa- aftermath of disasters. Tell me a little bit more about that and what you did next to kind of take that a step further.
1: Yeah. So, um, so when I got in, uh, my first, so you do camp, of course and you go in and then uh, go to do this thing called this A school, which is additional, this additional training. So you, then you, you finish all your basic, your basic training just to start to do your job. So it's like, Got on, got on the island, I think May or June, somewhere around there. And uh, I, like when I came in, a lot of m- people who would be my supervisors were kind of like taking their leave. So there's just kind of like summer leave because in the military, um, where I was working basically the end of the fiscal year is around like that's August, September timeframe or whatever. So like super busy. So nobody's, so, you know, if you're going to do, do any sort of leave, vacation, you do it well ahead of that time frame, So I came in and all, all my leadership were gone, basically. So they were kind of like in and out, taking their vacation, you know, ahead of this crunch time that was going to be coming up. And so uh, when I got in, there was nobody, there was, there wasn't really a good, strong, like, okay, we definitely know where you're going to go, which would surprise most people sometimes when thinking about military things that happen. But, you know, uh, and there were certain jobs that I wanted to do. And I wanted to work, um, in this logistics section, um, in this financial planning and logistics section of this office that I was working with. And so because there weren't as many, there weren't any like hard lined, okay, you're definitely going to do this job. You're assigned to this unit, but they hadn't, you know, because the supervisors hadn't all got together to figure out where they want to go, uh, it was kind of open. So I set up there and I just made myself indispensable. So I started learning all the other things that they were doing. And so when the people who were running my section came back, I had reorganized all of their filing systems I'd redone I you know became intimately aware with um their electronic systems and the data system things like that and so um they were like and I was like I work here now they're like I guess you do uh, so <laughs> um, the nature of it was that um basically that office coordinated all of the medical supply efforts and planning and things like that for the entire theater. And so it got me into understanding how, because over 70% of military activities are actually humanitarian in nature. And so, um, our job was obviously with, with medical supplies and medical relief effort, things like that. And you meant in those particular things. And so um, it got, it forced me to start thinking about how do we prepare? How do we understand what's needed? Um, how do we assess and evaluate um, the effectiveness of our work? And how do we do the same in preparing for future activities? How do we, and particular my, you know, big thing that I have then and still have now is efficiency. How do we, you know, I don't mind we have to give all the money to do it, give all the money to do it. But generally speaking, that's really poor management of your resources. What you really need is targeted, efficient resources with what I like to call our buffer zone, you know, so that's our, you know, our plus or minus just that, you know, for things, things go right, right or wrong. So, um, that became my interest. I became very interested in understanding how, um, there is a disparity in the needs for when we were dealing with things in Thailand versus the Philippines, you know, why did those things, you know, different, different, you know, obviously because of there's the, the difference in the, um, the geography of the region as well, the differences with the, related to the actual populations and the needs of those populations. And then of course the needs, um, uh, the people we have to send to those, you know, our responders, what those people need are going to be very different and how all of those things are going to impact, um, our relief efforts and the relief needs. And so that became very um, became a standing, became a rising drive. So I was still, at the time I was finishing my degree in psychology because I was done with it basically. So I was like, there's no reason not to. Um, but um, then Fukushima happened and the, the nature and size of that need were so expansive. You know, I mean, you know, just, I remember when it happened, I mean, you know, it's a huge overhaul. It's a major just organization and just requires so much change. And so, um, you know, uh, up until then, I because i have been doing this work, I got a good handle on what, you know, I got a handle on what I need to do to get an assessment of what was going on. And immediately, you know, I'd been working with the people I'd with. And we were saying, okay, this is based on these prior activities. We know this is what's needed to respond here. And we're capable of going here. And then I was able to compare that with um, other um, disasters of a similar nature and say, okay, this is what this is. Based on this, this we can predict that this is what's needed here. Um, and we did that in coordinating with a lot of other organizations to do the same thing. And so. That kind of really started the ball rolling as far as an interest in disasters. And then um, with Fukushima, because it required an understanding of the um, direct uh, impact of a environmental disaster on some sort of supply needs, um, that became, I was like, okay, wait, there's something here. And, you know, was like I'm finishing with this psychology degree, but I think I want to do this, whatever this is. I didn't know the term epidemiology or public health really at the time, uh, you know people I worked with were all medical doctors. So I thought I had to go get a medical degree. So that's I up leaving to go to Michigan state university to get my second bachelor's in microbiology and molecular genetics, thinking that I had to do like the, um, the pre-med track. Thankfully I realized I didn't have to do that because <laughs> <laughs> I don't care for that. But, um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it started. And from there, um, when I went to Michigan State, I did my, my degree in microbiology. Um, I worked on things from malaria to environmental um, contamination and pollutants and their impact on these, this invasive um, fish in the uh, Great Lakes. Um, I worked on uh, microbial filtration system efficacy after storm events, which is a really fancy way of saying, do our water filtration systems work after like major flooding of events you know, so are they still um, removing dangerous, um, you know, microbial contaminants from our drinking water, making making sure they're still potable? Um, spoiler alert: not as great as uh, not as great as we wanted them to be at the time. And we be better now. Um, you know, so that's that kind of started the ball rolling.
0: And fun fact: I believe I was getting my master's in environmental journalism at Michigan State University when you were there. So I like to think that at some point. We uh we maybe were in a line getting coffee together and had no idea. It is it entirely
1: possible. It is entirely possible.
0: Talking here today. So before, I want to hear more about your work currently on natural disasters. But first, I've been asking everybody on the podcast, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? As a scientist or as a person? I will leave that to you, personal or professional, whatever you're comfortable sharing.
1: Yeah. Um. That's a... You know it's not an uncommon question, and yet I, every single time I think I have an answer for it, and then and then I realize <laughs> I that I don't. Um, as a profession, as a professionally, probably um, my first my first lab, um, once I left the military, uh, I worked in um, this malaria research lab. And part of my job was rearing mosquitoes. And so you'd raise somewhere between 700 to 1500 mosquitoes, um, per breeding session. And, um, it was a really defining moment because it was like, I I was, I was my first purely, like I was in charge of this whole portion of this lab party, part of a team. And it really, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, um, but this was like a really hands on. I'm leading my own thing, um, so that was a really defining critical moment that really cemented that this is what I wanted to do, um, that I was heading in the right direction. Um, even, even though I knew somewhere along the lines like how I would get there and what research I do, I would do would change a little bit. Um. Personally, there's there's a lot of those moments. There's a lot a lot of similar moments. Um, Probably, um, there's a moment where, um, a former mentor of mine had reached out because I wasn't sure if I wanted to, um, make a certain professional choice and, um, she reached out. She said, you know, Gavin, there are some people who, um, choose a job. Um, some people who decide to, you know, become a doctor or become a lawyer or whatever, um, but there are some people who are meant to do certain things, and she was like, "You are meant to be a scientist, so go to graduate school." Because uh, there's a time when I wasn't sure if I was going to do that, um, and so she was like, "Go to graduate school." And so she was the one who pointed out U of L to me. And so, yeah,
0: excellent. What a what a what a great anecdote that is. It's so it's so those mentors uh, mentors that give us those little pushes of confidence at that point because when you're just going to grad school or even when you're there in the midst of it it's a trying time on the confidence it really is because yeah. you're you're made to feel often that you are not at the level of the people you're trying to get to and you're and you're kind of consistently
1: beat down uh, <laughs> so those those little pushes can mean a lot it's a series of events and and lessons in humility that's mm-hmm. that is that's graduate school that's a nice way of putting it.
0: <laughs> Humility. So as you said, your research now, you've, you've stayed on this track of looking at natural disasters and you're, you're focusing now, you're looking at depression and mental health in children in Texas communities after Hurricane Harvey. So why can depression in children tell us about disaster recovery and what has your research found so far?
1: Yeah, so um, children are kind of at the low end of the totem pole, right? As far as communities are concerned, like they get, they are, they are the proxy for everything. Um, how many, you know, the wealth of a, the access a child has to various resources is a reflection of the community's funding, their parents' funding and things like that. So children are kind of, they the canaries of a community. Um, if you want to know how well um, a community is functioning and how healthy it is, you measure a child. You look at, you know, Um, Also, they're also really good because we generally have really good measures and collection of data with relation to children um, because they have to go through so many different systems because there's so many different um, regulations and laws, obviously, regarding care of our children. And so um, they are often just a really good, consistent, strong um, data point for anybody who's interested in understanding the health of a community. Um, I have worked. I got into. I started. I actually started doing kind of some relationship ch- to child research when I was in during my um, second degree. Um, I looked at child behavior, like child trauma behavior, um, and then from now um, I've worked in some community work. And so what you, what we what we find what what's well known is that after a disaster, the people who are most impacted are women and children in general. And then, of course, you see increased impact by those who are um, historically oppressed anyways. So mar- you know, additionally marginalized groups, so racial minorities, um, people who are, you know, immig- you know, different immigration statuses, those people will be more impact- impacted as well. What we know, um, it's particularly depressing, is that um, if you are a person from a marginalized group who are impacted by a disaster, um, and, you, and then, of course, a child in one of those groups, Let's say you're both running down the street. Um, maybe you're a person from group B and the other person from group A. Group A is working they're working they're running 100% and group B is running at, you know, let's say 80. The disaster hits both of them. They both drop down to 40. Now they're running at 40%. The person in group A because they have more resources, they're already running at 100, they will likely rise back to 100. But this marginalized group, that group B, they're new, they're, they won't return to normal. Their new returning state will be lower than before. So, and, and what gets particularly frustrating about it is in the compounds. So, you know, it's not, you know, I, I'm looking at Hurricane Harvey, um, which happened in 2017, but there are disasters prior to that. And there are disasters, of course, that have happened since that. And then of course now we're also dealing in the midst of COVID. And so um, these disasters aren't one-offs. They don't get, you know, it's not like a year later everything's fixed, and now they're just kind of dealing with it. No, they, they compound. And so um, when we are looking at um, not only is it not only are children a good reflection of what's going on in um, the community as it stands right now, but they're a really excellent measure for how do we assess. Um, the longitudinal recovery f- efficacy of our relief efforts and goals, um, as well, and so um, it's that latter part about how do we measure longitudinal kind of life course um, recovery that is real focus of my interest and in work.
0: And you talked about how this one size fits all approach to disaster planning and recovery doesn't work, and you noticed that. In the Navy, yeah. right, when you're looking at different countries out there. So now that you're back in the U.S., can you talk about this and how the U.S. has has not performed perfectly in that regard, to put it nicely, and what we could do better to protect vulnerable communities?
1: I mean, the, uh, the most um, – the best way to think about that, actually, is it's COVID-19. It's really the most prescient way to think about it, you know, uh, because sometimes it's not necessarily do they have a one-fits-all. It's also if they don't have one. Right. So right now, of course, there's all this conversation about vaccinations and mask mandates. And the problem there is that there wasn't a uniform, there wasn't a uniformed response. So in this case, we needed a here's a uniform. We need to work together to create a coherent response. The reason this one would work is because we know it works for everyone. When you sometimes another one that people could just generally relate relate to is, of course, things um, in my time's wrong, but Bush's no child left behind law. And it was a huge backlash, backlash against it sense because it kind of had this, everybody has to meet this standard. But the problem with it was that it didn't necessarily take into account differences in different communities. It didn't take into account that there are um, language barriers that might, you know, take a bit longer to meet the standards that he set, his you know, his academic um, standards and things like that, his goals. And so when you have the problem with a one size fits all, or like, it's kind of like shotgunning. You know, we just hit everybody with the same thing. We all have different needs. And so this is kind of that conversation in, um, in this circle. We talk about, you know, equity versus, you know, equality. We're interested in saying, you know, we want you all to be able to do the same thing, but we all have different needs. to We all have different things um, that are needed to get there. A person who is blind, they don't need the same resources as a person who um, is not visually impa- Impaired. So we both need the sort of the resources to get you know uh, to a point, but, we, but what we need to get there is going to be different. And so um, when I think about uh, disaster response, a, a driving goal for my dissertation is how do we um, empower communities to identify their own specific needs um, in a way that's um, quantifiable and um, objective? Uh, so that it encourages communities to be their own, um, be their best advocates for their own needs, as opposed to kind of some external force saying, let me fix you. Do you have any examples of solutions?
0: A lot of this to me sounds like urban planning kind of intersecting with uh, with the kind of research that you're yeah. doing. And I'm wondering if you have examples in places where maybe how urban planning has incorporated environmental justice and thinking about things like disability into its preparedness for hurricanes, heat waves, and other disasters.
1: Yeah, so um, Hurricane Harvey. Hurricane Harvey is actually a really good kind of discussion point um, for a really kind of complex conversation there because we think about um, so, like, like Katrina. And part of the issue with Harvey was not just you know the, the rising frequency and severity of storms. That's, that's a big issue, but it's also, it's actually just the actual um, environmental layout. And what I mean, you know, in Katrina, of course, they talked about the levees and things like that and Hurricane Harvey, the issue is actually floodplains. Um, Texas floodplains are a problem. And because of urbanization where you have more people moving from rural areas to these urban cities, um, it's causing such a massive, it's having such a massive impact on the physical landscape of Texas. And so, and, um, so floodplains essentially are basically what they sound like they're areas that are more prone to flooding, um, and areas that are particularly prone, of course, are ones that are more um, historically are poor neighborhoods and things like that, which you know has its clear relationships to um, social inequities. And so, when thinking about policies, when people, when urban planners and insurance. Uh, insurance policymakers and things like that are coming up with how do they assess um, floodplain threats and things like that. They do these things based on, you know, we we hear these um, meteorologists talk about once in a 500 year storm or once in a 100 year storm. That's an actual term that that does actually have a meaning. And so it's based on a, um, it's based on history though, not probability. And so it doesn't necessarily take into account the rising impact of climate change. It doesn't necessarily take into account basically what actual life looks like on the day-to-day right now basis, and so it's not really up to date. And so, um, when you're thinking about how do you, how when you're doing urban planning and policymaking um, and looking at this relationship between disaster plan- uh, planning and preparedness and also just environmental justice, if you're not taking into account the actual lived experience. Of, the, of what you're trying to assess, um, and you're also not staying to date with the actual threat right now of climate change, which is you know the, the global threat um, to our species, your policies are always going to be very... They're not going to be optimal. They're going to be suboptimal. And so that's kind of a it's a rising issue. And so it's one of the reasons why I decided to uh, research Hurricane Harvey myself uh, for my dissertation for that very reason. Um, it allows it gave me this opportunity to, you know explore my own particular research interest in standardization and understanding how do we evaluate communities and their needs, but also to bring to constant conversation, which I think is something you know that yeah I think is really it's really important to me is to constantly try to be bringing to that conversation that this is really important. we need to constantly be aware that um, our preparedness, acute response, and longitudinal disaster response has to be dynamic. It has to um, incorporate what is going on right now with the mind of preparing for what's going to happen in the future, because it's only going to get worse. This seems to me that, you know, to ask a
0: policymaker to have a grounding in climate science and sociology uh, and public health is probably a, a pie in the sky dream. So yep. it seems like that someone like you, it would be really important to be able to communicate this. And I'm kind of thinking about what your what your science communication role has been so far, if that's fit into your work so far, and if not, how it'll fit in moving forward.
1: Yeah, um, so I've done... I've worked in I've done a lot of different jobs related to uh, that's kind of resulted in me having to speak to various groups, um, policy groups and things like that as well. And, you know, just non-scientists in general. And um, I think I probably take obviously as a graduate student, as a doctoral student, you know, my first thing is finishing my degree. Um, But I think I take my role as an educator as well, because I've been teaching now for like four or five years um, as seriously as I do my research world, because it's so, you know, the majority of people I teach are not going to be epidemiologists. You know, I teach a lot of, you know, master's students who will go on to be medical doctors or, you know, health communication specialists of some sort of their, in, in their own right. Um, and it's just so important that we figure out, we continue to focus on ways to explain not only what's going on, but in my opinion, my goal is to help people understand how to understand and consume future information. You know, I can tell you right now that, you know, based on insert number of factors, you know, climate, you know, climate change is the existential threat to our species. But more importantly, I want a person who's leaving from a class that I'm teaching or, a, you know, a lecture that I'm giving of some sort um, to understand how to, you know, tomorrow when the next news piece hits, he gave me some tools to be able to parse apart what they were saying a bit you know, more accurately as opposed to just saying, this is what it is. You know, he, is. I'm interested in helping you understand how to um, dissect that information a bit more uh, out of blue.
0: So I have a couple more questions here, and one of them is it- – natural disasters are so top of mind for people across the US right mm-hmm. now from from wildfires i mean even up here in northern michigan i had wildfire smoke this summer which was a first to the point yeah. where i couldn't i couldn't do my bike rides at night so uh it's even affecting me but it's you know natural disasters are just becoming more frequent and i want to if we can kind of end on a positive note if if you're talking to somebody out there who's worried about the increasing frequency of these natural disasters what's something that we can take uh, what is some, where are you optimistic in the, in the kind of, in the field that you're in right now and where we're moving?
1: I mean, the re- the reality is, so there's, there's a couple of, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, laying out where you are and then laying out what that means. So the truth is like, it's not going to get better. Um, if we were to do, if we were to be able to fix everything right now, there's, there's big, like a lag effect. We've done thing we've done the people in power have ignored the necessary experts for so long that we now have to just kind of deal with the drag effect. Um, so it'll get, it'll get worse, um, on all levels, you know, including a natural disaster. We also think of things like pandemics and pandemic is a natural disaster as well. And there will be more of them. Um, that being said, um, we are, we have the technology and the capacity to not only respond Um, but to completely revolutionize our entire infrastructure, both physically and socially, we simply lack, we simply just have to do it. There's no, you know, with relation to, you know, growing food shortages and water shortages and how do we move in our spaces? How do we save energy? There are, the solutions are there. There are no, you know, scientists, we've been working on this stuff for the last like, you know, 20 to 60 years. This, we, we aren't in the dark. We're not, you know, it's not like we are up the creek without a paddle. We know what to do, you know. So if anything, I find a lot of comfort in that. Um, so the solution isn't scientists have to find the answer. This, the issue is we need to get our legislators to do, the, you know, to, to to implement the answers, you know. If you, as a great example, you know, if you were, um, remember if you were in the late 90s, you um, early 2000s, we heard about, you know, holes in the ozone layer. Those aren't really a problem anymore. We enacted some amazing um, policies and those are not, we've recovered significantly. So we can enact policies that have global impact, you know, on the scale that's necessary. Um, So we're not, it's not, we're not beyond the pale. So that for me personally is where I draw the most kind of like comfort. It's like, there are. There is hope. There are the solutions. The answers are there, for sure. Then the ozone is a is a great example, and I, I believe was that the
0: Montreal Protocol is mm-hmm. that the right. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, I mean that was an international agreement. Yeah. And I think uh, when it comes to climate, we look at the Paris Agreement, but I think when it comes to climate, that is what is needed. Is this kind of across the board, all hands on deck?
1: Yeah, and then, um, you know, and the-, the answers, you know, there are various aspects to what driving climate change, as far as, you know, obviously we talk about fossil fuels, but, you know, how we use our, basic, which all boils down to the basic fundamental issue of energy efficiency, um, you know, but it's not just that, there are other aspects about environmental contamination and pollution and things like that, and all those things, solutions to every aspect of that are already there, we just need to scale them up, and so it's not, so it's frustrating, and it's, you know, really terrifying, you know, for, for good reasons, but I don't feel hopeless because I know not because I I feel that way. No, because I I can actually point out. Though here's the solution that somebody said. You know, we're concerned about food shortages. Well, we know that vertical farms are incredibly energy efficient and water efficient, and they are you know easily to adapt pretty much wherever you want to go, especially in urban communities. Um, You know, so those are things like that that just make me you know kind of hopeful.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. Full disclosure, I that was a curveball. I did not, Gavin did not know that question was coming, and to ask a disaster preparedness researcher to throw some optimism out there is not not an easy thing to do, but I appreciate it. So, Gavin, the last question I have for you is, what is the last book you read for fun?
1: I, I you know, I have it, because I actually just um, been on a reading. Anybody who's done a PhD will know uh, that there are oftentimes, you go through periods where you're like, everything but doing your PhD is more fascinating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, so like everything but my PhD has been absolutely fascinating to me. So I was actually just reading um, a series called Discardium, which is a very, um, it's a very, very niche genre called lit RPGs. So, uh, yeah, so tell it's a me a series. little, no, you can't leave it at that. What is, so that means role-playing game, right? It so is, what? it is, it is. So uh, if you know what D&D is, and most people at least have yep. some idea of what it is, um, imagine... Imagine a book or a series that um, right. everybody, even if you've not read it, because I don't really care for the series. But if you've read or know what Harry Potter is, right? So you know that t- this Harry Potter kid goes through university, the school or the School of Magic, uh, Hogwarts, right? Uh, so imagine the story is instead of just about oh he beats a wizard, he beats Voldemort. It's about. Um, it's more detailed discussion about how um, he gains his new powers and how uh, he does in his classes. And it's kind of like, it tells a story almost as well as how you might be reading if somebody was actually reading you their developing of their character in like a d and game sort of thing. So it's the lit RPG stands for literature RPG. So it's kind of, it's a really weird very you have it's a very nerd specific sort of genre you gotta really love the nerdy aspect of things like D and the math that goes into it and it's really really nerd specific um and when i honestly because of my work i don't none of my like um entertainment or relief involves realism at all all of my all of my all of, all, all of my entertainment is completely just complete separation from reality entirely. And so that sort of level of nerdery is as far from reality as possible. Well, I can relate. I had one
0: guest on here who turned the question around on me and I turned to my bookshelf and it was a stack of graphic novels that I was reading uh, because I am the same way. I don't read about the environment. Yeah, no, I time. can't.
1: I'm just like, you know, because it's either... I'm, you know, doing my doing of my research, for my work. Or of course, you know, a lot of my colleagues are sending me articles that are interesting. Then, you know, my professional fee, my professional, you know, fees are of course filled with you know doom and gloom and things like that. And you know, the occasional like article who's like talking, you know, who like myself is like, hey, this is really terrible. With you. There's great things going on, you know. So yeah, and or myself or like you, so yeah, the other be that sort of thing. Or I'll have various graphic novels that are kind of working through right now. Like I'm working through Tower of God right now. So.
0: Cool. Awesome. Well, Gavin, this has been so much fun. I I wish we would have met and had coffee 10 years ago in East Lansing, but I'm glad we're here now and you're a fellow and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) All right. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gavin. I know I did. Always good to talk to a fellow Spartan. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it and help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. That website has all kinds of good stuff and information about the program, so you should check it out. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling and support from the rest of the team Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelis banhorn Summer Ahmad, Gwen Ranniger Hannah Seo and Aaron Gomez Our team would love to hear from you Email us at agentsofchangeNEJ at gmail.com with suggestions for the show questions for the fellows, reviews or just to chat And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage agentsofchangeNEJ.org Thank you so much for joining me today and throughout the entire year. As I said, in two weeks, I'll be here to wrap things up, maybe a little look back, a little look ahead. But I hope in the meantime, you all have a wonderful holiday season and have some time to relax. We really hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. And with your help, we can do just that. Thank you so much and have a great week and holiday season, folks.